Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. Today I am delighted to welcome Ollie, Ben and Usman. Please can I ask you all to introduce yourselves, tell us what it is that you do at Software and an interesting fact about yourself. So I'm Ollie. I am a tech lead at Software and an interesting fact about myself is I'm currently sleep deprived because next door I've got a six week old who's been keeping me up all night. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Definitely worth it. (laughs) Hello, my name is Usman and I'm a DevOps specialist here at Software. And interesting about myself, well, my plans to build a public cloud at home have finally been realized. I have all my machines and with the press of a button, I'm going to start building my own cluster. Amazing. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm a tech lead here at Software. An interesting fact about myself, I play a lot of instruments some to a lesser or greater extent, but I think by the last count between me and my partner, we have 26 in the room next door, so a hefty collection. Wow. What's your most unusual instrument? I'm not sure what counts as unusual. I play quite a bit of banjo, which is not one of the standard ones. Cool. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much. It's Cloud Month at Software, and this is our third podcast on cloud. If you're interested in a general overview of why cloud technology is so awesome, then please do check out our first cloud podcast. And if you're interested in serverless and Kubernetes, then take a listen to our second. In today's episode, we are simply going to talk about all the neat things we've come across recently while we've been developing cloud platforms for our clients. Cloud technology is constantly evolving and has come a long way since the term was first used in earnest over 15 years ago. So let's get started. What are the top things we might want to know about cloud right now? And in no particular order, durable functions, what are they? (laughs) So durable functions are an offering from Azure. They already offered what are called Azure functions, which I guess are similar to Lambdas in AWS, which are serverless function based. So rather than spinning up an entire server and having an API, for example, you can perform a single action at once. Durable functions are a little different from them in that they are stateful and can be long running. So for example, they've got a few different usages as to why this is useful. And so for example, you might want a function that runs perpetually and just consistently is checking something, and you may have your own reasons to have that running constantly rather than, say, triggering on a cron job every every few minutes or every hour, for example. The reason I've been using them recently is because they have a, a neat implementation of a fan-out, fan-in pattern. So, for example, you can have a, a durable function, take a, an array of data, for example, and then spin out a new function to do some kind of analysis on each piece of that data, and that can be, say, hundreds of thousands of pieces of data, and it will spin that out, do relevant horizontal scaling so that it will be running on potentially lots of different machines, and then also fan it all back in for you and and collate the results for you. So it's simplifying the process of what you need to code in. Exactly, yeah. I think a lot of durable functions can be done manually via regular Azure functions, it just makes it a lot simpler for you and kind of encapsulates a lot of the tricky bits of adding that state. Okay, well, something else that is specific to Azure are data factories. You might be able to tell that I have a list of these things and I don't know what they are at all. So, (laughs) Isma, maybe you could tell me what a data factory is. Absolutely, Zoe. Azure Data Factory is a way to manage essentially your data. You can put stuff in from lots of different places. They say more than 90 connectors, which sounded a bit sus, but I had a look and there's lots of stuff for ingesting Azure data, 
even AWS data, which I thought was kind of cool. General database stuff, NoSQL, files, generic things, even things like Jira, GitHub, your cloud services. So it will take all of this data in a serverless fashion, and it will let you start building ETL pipelines. So you can then work out what your data can do for you and start to see things in different ways. So something that came may come to mind is pulling out your database stuff, seeing how many customers are being hit, maybe connect that with your transaction data in something like Xero. It's got a lot of pretty cool stuff, actually. Fantastic. And so just to clarify, ETL stands for Extract Transform Load, right? Yeah, that's correct. You can pull your data in from all these various sources, not just Azure. You can then work on it. So massage data into something that you can then report on, and then you can that into reporting systems or other things like that. Great. And because we've had a lot of these data analogies, you know, data lakes and data seas. And so I suppose the difference with a factory is it's not just a big pile of data you've got there. It's this idea that you can set it up to start processing your data and turning, I guess, raw data into eventually CANS data or some other type of data that's, that's easier to, to sell to consumers. Indeed, yeah. I, the analogies are rich when it comes to data. <laughs> but absolutely, yeah. It, it is serverless, which I think doesn't fit in with the sort of factory analogy. But yeah, you can throw in all the raw materials of like, I say, your Azure stuff, AWS stuff, it can put them into bottles and then you can ship them to your customers. So, Usman, something else that we've been using quite a lot is AWS Amplify. What would you use that for? So Amplify is quite an interesting one. AWS is used a lot for static websites and you have mobile apps and that kind of ilk as well. So before Amplify, you'd have to do all the wiring up yourself, which might mean connecting to Cognito for user authentication or APIs and some such like that. Just to kind of delve into that a bit more. So it's essentially writing a lot of code on AWS yourself to connect to functions within it. Is that, is that what you mean? So before Amplify, yes, you'd have to do it all manually. Okay. The idea of Amplify is it takes that manualness out of it. So you give it a Git repository with your source code in, and it gives you a couple of various frameworks that you can add to your React site or your Angular site. And the idea is that it helps you connect to everything seamlessly. It also has mobile frameworks, so you can connect to various, they call backends in Amplify. So as I say, with Cognito, as well use authentication. Instead of having to do all of that faffing yourself, you can now use something like Amplify. It will do the deployments for you, and it will handle all of that sort of messy stuff that you normally had to sort out beforehand, all through just having some shared open source libraries. That sounds very cool. So what what are the limitations? It's the first place I go. What are the limitations of using it? So it sounds like if you want to use it for a website, you have to be using React or Angular. Is that right? They have a set of ones which work with their system. So Vue, Next.js, Angular, React, JavaScript. They may well add more onto that as well. They also have native apps for Android and iOS, along with a couple of other bits and pieces there as well. The gain I see certainly is for something like rapid prototyping, this sounds amazing because instead of having to deal with all of that plumbing in the background, you can just let AWS deal with it for you. I can see it being a bit opinionated though as well. Even though you can chop and change backends and it does a lot of that stuff for you, you still have to work with it or I can see it being an absolute pain. I guess it's like with anything you're using that's kind of like a ready-to-roll piece of code, right? You're then limited to the options they have decided to allow you within the code that they've written for you. Absolutely. Although I do think that if you're using AWS anyway, 
for like your databases, authentication, all that kind of stuff, then this does seem like a good thing to look at and see if it just does everything you want. Okay, interesting. So is it becoming a kind of standard that if you're using AWS, you would just use Amplify to integrate everything a bit more seamlessly? Not sure just yet. Amplify is still very new. So I think the jury's out on that one. But I see certainly a niche there where it would be really useful. Certainly like startups, again, rapid prototyping, where you don't want to waste your time dealing with all these special use cases. You can just slap this in and get something up and running pretty quickly. Right, exactly, which is always like the kind of best use case for something that is a bit pre-written. Maybe you don't want to use it on your your long-term, super scalable, you know, business-defining piece of software. Maybe it's more important there to look at what you want to do yourself and tailor it for your project. But for something where you want to get it up and running and out there quickly, then it's really helping you out. Yeah, definitely. This is certainly the kind of thing, if I wanted to start a new project, I would look at. But I don't think it's something you'd want to retrofit onto something you've got already established. Right. That makes perfect sense. Uh, Ollie, the next item I want to ask about, A, it's called dark, which is just very cool. But then it says lang in brackets. Does that mean language or what? what is dark slash dark lang? So Darklang is a programming language, but it's it's kind of if you wanted to design programming completely from scratch and ignored everything that everyone's already done, kind of given the technology we now have, browsers that are good, fast internet connections and all of that. The idea is that you, rather than developing code on your machine, compiling it, deploying it into the cloud, doing that kind of thing, you write code in the browser in response to requests. So it gives you a really short feedback cycle and it kind of builds on feature flagging and other serverless technologies to give you the ability to not have to worry at all about your infrastructure and give you a kind of really abstracted, you have an incoming request that you need to respond to. How do you do it? Build your business logic rather than worrying at all about any of the infrastructure or what's going on underneath. Okay. I think I'm getting my head around this. Could you give me an example of what you mean when you say you get a request and then you write some code? <laughs> so as an example, maybe in a traditional way, you'd if you wanted to say in a mobile app, get the opening times for a set of clubs for a, a leisure center, for example. So you'd need a new web endpoint for that. You'd need a new server to run that on, so you'd build some infrastructure for that, you'd build a, a new project to run on that, and you'd kind of compile all of this, and you'd build a load of things around that. Instead, with Darklang, what you can do is say, I want a new web endpoint, but say, get club info, and just start developing that straight in a browser, and you get a generated URL for that, but you can put a new somewhere else, and you kind of just, like, all of that project infrastructure setup and all of that cost goes away so you're focusing only on my business need is this let's build something for it super interesting so when you say it goes away does it actually go away in that it's no longer required because of of the setup that darklang uses or is it that darklang is coding some stuff behind the scenes so it's actually behind the scenes magic that's going on. And interestingly, so it's kind of, it's in a preview of the moment and it's not uh, something that you'd necessarily want to use for proper production use at the moment. And it's been impacted quite heavily by COVID and like the sets of changes in the whole economy around what's sustainable and what's developable. So it's a bit in flux at the moment as a project. But what actually happens under the hood is it spins up a load of machines in Google Cloud, 
it has a de- proper database in Google Cloud and it, it has those things, but it completely hides those from you. So you, in a similar sort of way to Amplify, you lose control of those knobs. You don't have that thing to twiddle, but it just works. And so you get a really slick, rapid prototyping and rapid development tool. I'd be really interested to try it out on a much bigger scale project and see how it kind of scales to that because there's there's some things that feel like you lose so you don't get a kind of approval flow and an approval process in the same way as you might do for normal traditional development cycles you mean if you want to get someone else to take a look at it before you put it live that's harder is that what you're saying yeah pretty much i was about to ask as well not only that but does it have any kind of version control equivalent if you're writing code directly in the browser rather than checking it into a traditional repository (laughs) Yes, it does, but it's not in the same sense. So one of the really interesting features and relates to something else I think I want to talk about is it builds on the idea of feature flags. So you might develop your new code on a kind of a branch that you then test out for some set of users and then roll it out to everyone. So you get that kind of ability to iteratively work on features. It has some concept of being able to undo things and and go back to previous states it gets quite interesting when you have data stored in the background and if you've got a database and you change your schema how do you deal with that change in a way that's fully reversible or kind of forwards and backwards and right now it doesn't deal with that kind of thing particularly well but it's somewhere that i think there's some energy going into and focusing on it very interesting so it's one of these things where the robot overlords are maybe not coming in general life, but they could be helping us out with some coding. Yeah. <laughs> if we can figure out how to code the robot overlords to start with. Very much. But it solves the the problems that everyone has to solve each time they set up a new project and leaves you to do the thing that computers are bad at of the human judgment of what's important and kind of encoding what a end user wants to be able to do into a set of rules. You still have to do as a programmer, but you don't have to worry about how I scale this or where it's running in the globe or any of that kind of infrastructure stuff. Mm. So what's been your experience using it then as a developer? So I've played with it on some kind of small hobby projects and small scale things. And it's been really powerful for a narrow set of use cases and it's growing for the other ones. So there's certain things that are just a little bit more difficult than you'd want them to be, like scheduling something in the background to run every hour or something. When I first started, wasn't really a thing that you could do. And it sounds like that's quite a useful feature, but it's getting there and it's gaining more features. I think it seems really powerful for a kind of rapid prototype and a, we want to build something really quickly. We don't want to have to think about any of these infrastructure costs or anything else that's going on underneath us, but we do want to be able to prove that this works and you don't have to worry about scale and you don't have to worry about some things. I think right now it wouldn't be something to be used in a big production system. I think it's kind of untested enough. That would be slightly worrying. It'd be risky. (laughs) Bleeding edge. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit too terrifying for all of a production system, but I could see it working for a small part of a production system and you just kind of build defensively around it if it happens to go down or disappear. And that would be quite an interesting thing to try. Great. Is it tied to a particular platform or is it something you can kind of just use on any platform? So it runs currently on Google Cloud, but in a way that you wouldn't necessarily notice. I don't think it's got plans to be, it's not something that you deploy or manage at all. It's just there is this software as a service that you can use. Wow. So it's even like a step before it's like, it's cloud platform agnostic. It's like, don't you worry about that. You just write some code and we'll go and find a cloud platform. Yeah, effectively. Right now, I think to get it going, it's only on 
it's only really running on Google Cloud in the background, but I don't think that's not a, a kind of fixed thing. It's just, it's kind of separate to the cloud provider that's underneath you. It's just, it's a thing in the same way as GitHub. You don't really think about where it's actually running. It's just this tool that you can use directly. Right. Fantastic. Well, let's get a bit more back to current production ready <laughs> tech we might use. And on Azure, another Azure feature is event grids. So how would you use those? So Azure's event grid kind of sits underneath a lot of its other offerings to provide event-based architecture very simply. So you might have a lot of different things you might want to respond to in Azure. So for example, there's things like blob storage. You might care when someone uploads or updates some data there. There's service bus. You might care about when messages get added or removed from queues. So there's all sorts of Azure services that will automatically publish an event to their underlying event grid whenever anything changes. And then they also have some inbuilt ways of dealing with that. So again, some built in to their existing offerings. So for example, the way we've been using it is say, whenever anyone uploads a blob to blob storage, we'll automatically stick that on a service bus queue ready to be processed. But you can also pipe that into various other bits of Azure's offerings, including you can pipe it directly to Azure functions via a webhook. And once you've done that, it's running your own code. So at that point, you're not limited to just what Azure has set up for you already, you can write your code triggered by any one of these various events. Fantastic. So essentially, it's just a nice little piece of infrastructure that allows you to manage what's going on and respond to events. Yeah. Rather than say sitting there and having to poll for them or or anything similar. Exactly. So there's a, f- a few of these were already baked into Azure functions as triggers. So for example, you could already trigger an Azure function by a blob trigger, say whenever you upload a blob or a service bus trigger. But as you say, under the hood, they're just polling. And so they're not as quick and they're not as um, powerful as the event grid ones. Mm, fantastic. So is this something where whatever you're coding on Azure, you would want to be using event grids? It sounds like it's quite a, a critical part of how everything's running. I would say so if you're building something event-based. So again, if you're, if you're wanting to respond to things in, in your other Azure components, if you're building out something a bit more kind of manually triggered, like a more traditional API that's going to be triggered by users making HTTP requests, then it might not be for you. Yes. Okay. So can you give me an example of what kind of event? In my mind, everything is, is a website. <laughs> if I'm trying to think about how I'm like, so I go to a website and I upload a photo and that triggers an event. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Or would that be a more standard request? On the subject of upload, that's quite similar to what we're using it for, actually. So we have some data ingest processes, essentially. And those aren't being uploaded via any kind of user-facing front end. Those are being uploaded by someone on the development team at a client. They upload their, their raw data directly to blob storage. And so what EventGrid is helping us doing is kind of piping that to the relevant place to be ingested properly, rather than having the user have to know exactly how to kick off that ingest. So they don't now need to know anything more than here is where you upload your file. So behind the scenes, we originally had this pointing at a a webhook function, as I mentioned, and then we decided because this takes a little while to to process, we actually wanted to add a queue to give it a bit of a buffer under high load. So we just changed our event grid from pointing at a function to pointing at a service bus. And then we trigger our function from the bus. So now we can queue up those uploads without having to have the user worry about it. Yeah, it's all just running a bit more quickly and smoothly. And Mm -hmm. so we have not talked too much about AWS, given its preeminence. One of its developments is GroundStation. So tell me a bit about GroundStation. So AWS GroundStation is completely different to everything else I've ever seen AWS do. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I love this because it just completely threw me when I heard about it. GroundStation lets you control 
satellites in orbit. The idea behind it is, if you wanted to build your own ground station, say you've got your big telecommunications company, you've got satellites up there, running your own ground station infrastructure is expensive. And there's a lot of operating costs and all of that stuff. So AWS gives you access to their global set of ground stations, pays you go. Wow. Literally per minute. It's absolutely insane. And the idea is that you bring your own satellite. Now, of course, we all have satellites here and there, so we just bring that with us. Does it count if you just fly a drone high enough that it... <laughs> it goes under what are called like the X-band and the S-band. I don't know much about satellites, but I think they're quite high up. So they're higher than low Earth orbit. And I think that's pretty high. Sounds high. So I think we're talking serious, like, shoot it off in a rocket kind of satellites here. So yeah, you bring your own satellite, you sort of set up your AWS account, you talk to AWS custom support, and they will onboard your satellite into their system. They also have access to Aqua, Terra, and a few other ones. These are like NASA satellites, and they're part of the Earth observing system. So you can sort of connect to them and get some telemetry data from them as well. You could just go and have some fun with this now if you really wanted to. Wow. You don't have to have a satellite. Behind the scenes, it launches some EC2 instances and does some plumbing in the background to securely connect to your satellite. As I say, you can set it up to be like 10 minutes. You can do a bit of stuff, pay as you go. And it's pretty cool. It's absolutely mad, <laughs> but I love it so much. And now I want a satellite. It's fantastic, isn't it? And it's just fantastic this kind of shared ownership and shared access that we can get of these incredibly expensive pieces of tech. Because like you imply, we're probably not all going to be able to go out and buy a satellite, but being able to use the ones that are already there, getting data in this really unique way to be able to access that and, you know, hence come up with our own uses for it, I think it's, it's just, you're right, it's incredible. And it's a great model for whether we can build on this going forwards, right? Are there other, can we get access to maybe the Large Hadron Collider pay as you go? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. I feel like it's almost democratizing that availability because, again, looking at the fact that you've got, I say, Aqua, Terra, there's a few other ones there that are being run by NASA and you can just sort of, get the direct broadcast data through ground station so i can see people who want to like some innovative people who want to do something different with satellite data they can connect to this you know do it pay as you go or similar and you could get some really interesting things so in the space now that this data is available like to anyone you don't need a ground station incredible it's the future Okay, moving on, let's have a chat about Launch Darkly, which is not related to Dark, is that right? <laughs> yeah, so Launch Darkly is another thing that contains Dark in the name, that is platform agnostic, it's not a, it's not tied to one of the major cloud providers as a thing, but it's feature flagging and kind of remote config as a service. And this is something that the other the cloud providers do offer in various forms as a specific product for their offerings, depending on exactly what you want to look at. But the idea is that you have a load of features in your system that you might want to trial at either a small scale. So maybe 10% of your users get some new feature, or you want to be able to roll things out gradually or turn things on and off as the whim comes or as the world changes with global pandemics, for example. Right. And being able to do changes like turn off a feature, an entire feature remotely in a few seconds without needing to do any deployment or any code change is really powerful for that kind of thing. Fantastic. So what do you have to do? You have to integrate it into your code as you write it. Is that how it works? 
Yeah, so you have to make a conscious decision as you build a feature to have a kind of off switch in there. And then what Launch Directly gets you is the ability to control that off switch. So you can kind of apply metadata-y type things to that switch. So rather than it just being this is on or this is off, it can be this is on because this user's ID ends in a zero or because this attribute about this user is like they're in our pre-release group or something. And then you can change those rules as well in the back end. So you ask, is this feature enabled given this set of data? And you can get a response that can change over time and can do kind of as complex as you want it to be in terms of enabling or disabling features. So as long as when you're writing your code, you indicate which bits of code relates to which feature, you then get this quite sophisticated platform for saying who's going to get access to that. Yeah, exactly. Cases where we've We've used this when you're kind of starting to roll out a new feature to end users and you don't know how it's going to land or what the performance impact of it might be across the system. So you want to trial it for a small number of users, see how it's going, and then you might decide that actually it's all great. We just want to roll it out to everyone. But being able to make that decision separately from your deployment, so it kind of splits release for a feature from deploying that feature so you can get a kind of faster deployment cycle because you don't care if you introduce a feature that might be broken because it's off and then as a business you get to decide we want to turn this feature on now like it doesn't matter if about the deployment side of things you've done that already that happened last week you can now turn the feature on because the calendar months changed or whatever kind of business rule you might have to turn it on. Fantastic. Just making you so much more responsive to the data you're getting back from your actual users and how they're using and how things are performing in in the wild, as it were. Yeah, exactly. So just quickly to finish this off, tell us a little bit about Kubernetes cloud controllers. So this is a relatively recent AWS innovation, and it's grown out of a few different concepts in Kubernetes and in in platforms as a service. What the cloud controllers let you do is spin up real AWS infrastructure from within Kubernetes. So you can tell your Kubernetes cluster that you want an AWS RDS instance, a database somewhere, and you can manage that entirely from Kubernetes. And you can do that across most of the resources that are available in AWS. There's some some limitations to it at the moment, but that's kind of being worked on. What this lets you do is use one kind of API for how you describe your infrastructure and how you describe your projects. So you can only interface directly with Kubernetes. And then the fact that you've got a database that happens to be managed by Amazon rather than your own team is is basically transparent. You don't have to worry about it. Um, there's a kind of a few related projects. So you can do something similar in uh, Azure, which is called Azure Service Operators, I think, or Azure Operators, something similar. And then there's both kind of stem from this idea of Open Service Broker, which is an older way of managing infrastructure outside of your main cluster, but you still care about. Fantastic. Thank you so much to all of my guests, to Ben and Usman and Ollie. As cloud technology gets more and more mature, we're going to see increasing options and services like those that we discussed today. As we said, it's it's the future, it's here. We're gradually unfolding as we go. So follow us on the software blog and follow this podcast on all podcast apps to keep up with things as we find them out. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.